Please open up in your Bibles to Jude. We're going to be in verses 16 through 19 this morning. If you've not been with us for uh, the past several weeks, we've been going through the small and often forgotten about epistle of Jude. This entire book of the Bible is really about Jude's war against false teachers, false teachers of his day. There were, at that time, certain men who had snuck into Christian churches, uh, and they were just wrecking havoc on the churches. They distorted the gospel. They were distorting the grace of God and saying, well, because God is gracious, you can do whatever you want. Uh, They were arrogant. They were pursuing their fleshly, sinful desires. Ultimately, these men cared very little for holiness. Not only were they making a, a mockery of the gospel, they were leading faithful Christians away from the truth. They were leading people in the churches into error. Jude says that there are hidden reefs at the love feasts of the church. That is like deadly rocks who could shipwreck the faith of some. They were a danger to the church. And Jude had to respond. To had, he had to contend for the faith, as it were, and go to war against these men. And so this epistle warns time and time and time again about the judgment that's coming for the false teachers And by application, the judgment that's coming for all the ungodly. This morning, we're going to especially focus on the final word that Jude speaks about these men. He's said a lot of things about them throughout the book. He's warned of the pending judgment that they're going to be under. He's identified their sins. But in verses 16 through 19, he really concludes his warning about these men. He then, after that, switches to really talk to believers And so that's going to be our text, his final word on the false teachers. Uh, We have a lot to get through this morning, so we're just going to jump right in. I'm going to read verses 14 through 19. We'll pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get going. Let's read God's word. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask for your aid, Lord. Please make your word effective in our hearts and sanctify us for your glory. Lord, I am aware very much so that my words are just words. They have no power in and of themselves. Lord, please, I'm asking you, grip your people with the truth that's spoken of here. Please help your people to not be grumblers or boasters, to not be worldly people. Rather, Lord, strengthen us by your Spirit Cause us to look always to Christ and follow after his example. 
Remind us of the gospel and of forgiveness. And cleanse us, Lord, we ask. Please help us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 14 through 15, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Enoch's prophecy. That was everyone's favorite text. We talked about Enoch. It was weird. But we're past it now. Uh, the content of his prophecy uh, was very significant. It was this statement of judgment that Jude was bringing forth and, and warning the false teachers with. I wanted to remind you of the particular words Jude, Jude uses in verses 14 through 15. He says, Behold, the Lord comes to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I want you to notice in verses 14 through 15, there are two things that judgment comes up against. Two things that he identifies. We didn't talk about this very much a couple of weeks ago. But notice he says here, convicts all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Two things. It wasn't just their deeds that warranted judgment. It was also their speech, what they had said, their tongue. Scripture has much to say about the tongue, about what we say. Uh, Our tongue is a powerful tool, a powerful tool. We're told in James 3 that with it, men can serve God mightily. They can delight in God and worship God, but they can also, with the tongue, set the world ablaze with the fires of hell. It is a powerful tool. Verse 16 describes the kind of ungodly speech that characterized these false teachers, that would result in judgment coming against them. Here's what Jude writes in verse 16. These are, these men, these false teachers, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now, grammatically, there are really two statements being said here, and then a bunch of ways to describe those two statements. Uh, He says that these men are malcontent grumblers who follow their sinful desires, and they're loudmouth boasters who show favoritism. But really, the the essence of the charge against them is that they grumbled and they boasted. They grumbled and they boasted. I want to first consider this most common sin of grumbling this morning. Grumbling, complaining, whining, whining. These men were grumblers, they were complainers, and I think uh, we also are very much grumblers and complainers. Throughout this book, Jude has frequently hearkened back to the Old Testament to prove his points. He's done it on a number of occasions. Uh, When we hear the sin of grumbling, I think that if you're really, really familiar with the Old Testament, your mind first jumps to Israel after they had come out of Egypt and how they responded in the wilderness. Israel. This is a, such a critical point to, to grasp. God was so kind to them as a people. They were in slavery. They were, they were brutalized in Egypt. And God rescued them. He brought them out with the most dramatic, powerful signs that arguably had been seen since the creation of the world. These, these powerful plagues God rescued his people, brought them out, and he didn't just leave them then. He led them. He guided them with with 
pillars of fire and clouds. He split the Red Sea. He led them into the wilderness. He brought them to a mountain where he gave them covenant stipulations. They were decidedly marked off, marked as God's covenant people, a particular and special blessing amongst all the nations in the earth. They were sustained. They were provided for. And yet, if you read the account in Exodus, it's incredible. They literally get across the Red Sea, and the next verses say the people grumbled. They complained. We're hungry. We're thirsty. They grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against Aaron. They grumbled against God. They looked around. They saw what they lacked, and they complained about it. And we're told that God saw this grumbling as rebellion against him. He counted it as rebellion. And we're actually, when the spies were sent to go spy out the land of Canaan, they came and said, there's lots of giants in the land. The people grumbled about that as well. And that is ultimately the sin that resulted in them being stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. It was their grumbling and the complaining of the people that resulted in an entire generation being killed off in that wilderness wandering era. Well, Jude says these wolves, these false teachers committed the same errors as that rebellious generation. Ultimately, they weren't content and they grumbled. That's really what grumbling is. It's an expression of discontentment. They wanted more than they had. They complained about it. They were malcontent grumblers, as Jude says. Well, as we've been doing throughout the book of Jude, when we look at the errors of false teachers, when we look at the things that they were characterized by, we are aided as Christians by examining the things we ought not do, the things we ought to avoid. And so I think we ought to take a look and consider grumbling. I want you to think, how often do you find yourself complaining about things? We may think when we're complaining we, to ourselves, oh, it's not that bad, I'm just kind of venting, I'm letting off some steam, I'm not really whining or complaining. Um, I think we do these kinds of things, grumbling, in an incredible number of circumstances and situations. I think it's a very common sin in our day. Here's a couple situations that you might find yourself in. How, how about work? Work. Let's say work for you is really hard really hard. Let's say it's not enjoyable. Your boss is perhaps unreasonable. The expectations are unfair. It's really easy when you go to lunch, when you're going home for the day, to find a coworker, perhaps when you get home to your spouse, and just grumble, just complain, just whine about what's going on. Or perhaps your family, say your spouse or your kids, they're not acting the way that you'd like. They're really frustrating to you. They don't live up to the standards that you have set. You want things to be different. And so you grumble, you complain, you whine. Things aren't what I want them to be. I wish things were better. Now, I want to just acknowledge there is a place for rebuke. There's a place for correction. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about complaining, a grumbling, discontent heart. You know what that is. You're sitting with a friend and you just unload your grievances. We can do this in almost any category of our lives. Do you complain about your house? 
or your material goods. Perhaps how much money you make, you feel you ought to make more. I think it's really common for people to grumble about church, grumble about problems or people. You mutter things under your breath to one another. Grumbling especially shows up when times are really tough. There's problems and afflictions. You find that you complain about those things. You grumble, you whine. It's always on your lips, on your tongue. It's coming out. It's, your, it's a, the angst in your heart coming forth. Maybe verbal grumbling is not a problem for you. But what about the grumbling of the heart? It's a grumbling that runs deeper than speech. Have you ever just sat by yourself and played out a conversation with someone where in the conversation you're just berating them and cutting them and you're imagining how that conversation would go? You're almost fantasizing about it. That may not be grumbling with your lips, but it's the spirit of grumbling. I feel very confident to assume that there's not a single person here in this room that can honestly say that there's never a complaint on the tongue. Grumbling is a common, common sin. It's one that we rarely realize in ourselves. We think, well, as long as I don't swear, as long as I'm not gossiping or slandering, as long as I'm not doing one of those things that we're okay, I don't think that we often realize that grumbling is so vile in God's eyes. I think it's a plague on our particular society, American society. It's in our culture. It's in our churches. I mean, I, I was raised in church culture where grumbling about church was just what you did. You just spent time grumbling about problems. You talk about all the issues, the things that frustrated you. I grew up like that. I participated in that. It spreads like a plague too. Going from person to person, household to household, this grumbling, this content, discontentment, this, this complaining, it's evil. It's an evil thing. It's wicked in God's eyes. It's what characterizes false teachers in this text. These are grumblers, malcontents. They're not content. I often think that we don't realize as Christians just how significant a problem grumbling is because we're in an enduringly discontent culture. Our society is very, very, very discontent. I mean, the spirit of the age is this kind of mentality. I've got to have the newest iPhone. Otherwise, I might not be satisfied. I need the newest thing. I, I, I grumble if my microwave takes five minutes to cook food. I'm so impatient. Impatience is really just discontentment. We're an impatient people an impatient culture, a discontent culture. As Americans particular, in particular, we want more than we have. We want our churches to be bigger and better. We want more money. We want more stuff. That's the impulse. That's the American dream. We're always shifting jobs to find something better. We're always moving houses for something bigger. Not all of this is sin, but it is the spirit of discontentment. We're not satisfied where we are. We want different things. We want more. We feel like we should have more. We swim in this culture, and I think it has infected our brains. I think it's affected the way that we think about this. There are several points I wish to make about this sin. I pray it could be helpful for you. Five points in particular. The first is this. 
we must realize that grumbling is the death of thanksgiving. When we grumble, we are not giving thanks. It's really the antithesis of gratitude. Brothers and sisters, if you have a discontent heart, you're so laser-focused on what you don't have, on what you lack. It makes you blind to the many, many blessings that God has given you. The Lord has been so kind to us. He has, he has given us so much, all the good that we have, all the good that we have. James 1 says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above. Every good gift, all of them. Think of a good thing in your life. Has not God granted that to you? When we complain, when we grumble, we're so hyper-focused on what we lack, we disregard all the graces of God. It's kind of like if you were to win a car in a sweepstakes. You get this fancy car, and you sit in it, and then you say, ah, this car is the worst. The bass on the sound system is not what I hoped it would be. It's absurd. We're, 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 we're focusing on this tiny thing, and we forget the immensity of the grace We've been given. And brothers and sisters, have we not been given more than a car? Take stock of your life. It's a good thing to do with some regularity. Look at what God has blessed you with. Many, many blessings. Just the, the basic things right now. He's given you your family. He's given you your church. He's given you physical health. You're, you are breathing right now. Every breath is a gift from God. Your heart, since I started talking, has been beating consistently. You haven't even thought about it. God has sustained your life. You have good food. You'll eat after church. You'll go eat good food with your family or friends. You have shelter, houses. You have friends even, enjoyment in life. Grumbling looks at all of these things and says, but what I lack is... More than these things, have we not been saved from wrath? Have we not been rescued from our sin? Have we not been given the gift of the Holy Spirit? Shall we regard these marvelous graces as though they are worth so little to us? I think children illustrate this point very well. Children have an abundance of blessings given by their parents. They have toys and food and clothing and safety. Yet we mark it as immaturity when they only have eyes for what they want and they forget everything that they need. Like, I need this toy. Like, you have all these toys, but I need this toy. <laughs> or, or, or you don't need dino nuggets. You have food on your plate right now. I say that to my son all the time. We're quick to recognize the immaturity of this in children. They want what they don't have. They forget what they do have. But we are very slow to recognize the same things in ourselves. Scripture does not tell us to complain about what God has withheld. What does it tell us? It tells us to rejoice always, to be thankful in all circumstances. Do you, do you remember um, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1? Romans 1 is this dark chapter. It's a spiral downward of depravity where uh, he, 
Paul talks about how God gave man over to their sin and mankind gets darker and darker and more depraved and more sinful and wicked. It's this spiral. But the tipping point at the beginning of the chapter, the, the first thing that sets off this downward spiral in man is this. This is what Paul says. Men did not honor God or give thanks to him. It was thanksgiving that kicked off, or a lack of thanksgiving that kicked off this spiral downward. Ingratitude does violence to the soul. It darkens you, it hurts you, and it robs God of what he's due. He's been so kind. And will we really grumble about what we lack? If you grumble much, you'll find that you really do lack a heart of gratitude, a thankful heart, and that is a tremendous sin. Second point, grumbling rejects providence. Grumbling rejects providence. It reveals that you do not trust God. Right now, this morning, we have particular needs and burdens and things on our heart. Um, God knows those things. He knows what is a burden to us. He knows our greatest struggle this morning. He is not ignorant. He's not unaware. And he's not powerless. He has brought you into this circumstance. We're told in scripture that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things that come to pass, God is working in accordance with his perfect will. He knows what you want, and yet, if God withholds something from you, does he not do it for a good reason? The goodness of God is at work through providence. If we cannot see why he's withheld what we desire, if we, we cannot see why we don't have what we think we ought to have, remember, we're only human. We see what's right here. God sees far beyond what we can. He knows what's in the future, and he works things in accordance with his goodness. Israel couldn't see that manna was coming, and yet they grumbled that they were hungry. God is much wiser than me. He sees all that we need. I've been thinking a lot lately about this line from the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, our daily bread. Uh, give us what we need for today, Lord, not, not tomorrow even today. Daily sustenance, daily food, enough energy to make it through today, enough fortitude to get through today's trials, enough faith to cling to the Lord through today, enough manna to sustain me until tomorrow. I think this prayer teaches us contentment. It teaches us to not grumble during those seasons where we really only have what we need for today. We might not have the money that we need for tomorrow. We might not have the energy or the wisdom to deal with tomorrow's problems, but he does give us what we need today. God knows what we need, and I'm not going to grumble just because he's only given me what I need for today's troubles. Tomorrow is its own day. As Christians, I think we must trust in the daily providence of God. Give us today our daily bread and teach us to be thankful and content with that bread that you've given us. I'm reminded of Proverbs 30, which says this, give me neither poverty nor riches. 
Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. In other words, Lord, give me precisely what I need. I might want more. Give me what I need. And this totally removes grounds for grumbling. Absolutely. Because what I don't have today, if I don't have money or health or comfort or peace, if I don't have those things, the Lord hasn't seen fit to grant them to me in his perfect wisdom. And so trust in the Lord. If I don't need it if he says I don't. Uh, think about it. I mean, when you're grumbling, what you're saying to God is, I know better than you. What I would do is better than what you have done. I know what I need most, more so than you do. And I think that leads into my third point on grumbling. Complaining spirit ignores this fact, that sanctification and refinement specifically happen through trials and affliction. Sanctification and refinement happen through trials and affliction. This morning, if you personally are in the midst of great need, great hardship, and if you're tempted to complain about the difficult circumstances, consider, has not God's hand brought about these sufferings, afflictions, and hardships for your benefit? That's what we're told in Scripture. James 1 tells us to count it all joy when you have trials because the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Romans 5 says suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. A metal worker cannot purify or refine metal unless there's fire. A glass blower cannot make the beautiful creations that he makes unless there's heat then how can we as Christians expect to avoid trials? We cannot. The Lord afflicts us with tragedy that he may bind us up and heal us and restore us and sanctify us. So if right now in the midst of affliction, you're grumbling against God, you're complaining about your circumstances, Realize that you are rebelling against God's tool of sanctification. Do not grumble when a trial has befallen you. God tells us in Hebrews that he disciplines his children whom he loves. If he didn't discipline you, if you didn't have any difficulties in life, it'd be a sign he doesn't love you. But he does love you, and so he disciplines you. And that's painful. Psalms tells us that the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. For you who have afflictions this morning, which stir your soul to be tempted to grumble, I say this, the Lord is kind to you. He is near to you. He hears your cries. He knows your pains. And he is bringing you through this for your good and his glory. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That leads us to point number four. Grumbling robs you of an opportunity to pray. I want to make this really clear. Grumbling is not the same as prayer. 
You may be tempted to think, well, both are talking about my circumstances, kind of pouring them out verbally. Not the same thing. Read the Psalms. So many of the Psalms are David saying, Lord, I am in anguish. Hear me. Rescue me. My enemies surround me. Today is really a bad day, Lord. (laughs) Help me today with my enemies and my trials and my struggles. That's not grumbling. That's prayer. When we whine to our fellow men, when we grumble in our hearts, that's not prayer, that's rebellion. But when we cry out to the Lord, when we we grab hold of him, we say, Lord, help me. Help me today. Give me what I need. I cannot do this. I've reached the end of myself. Aid me. That's not grumbling. That's communion with God. That's prayer. Israel ought to have prayed to God for food rather than grumbling. But they complained about it. They said, it'd be better if we died in Egypt than be where we are here. There's far more power in prayer than there is in complaining. You'll get further if you pray than if you whine about something. When we grumble about our circumstances, what we're doing ultimately is we're robbing ourselves of sweet communion with God. We're robbing ourselves of a way to receive peace in the midst of a trial. I think it's a general rule that we as Christians don't pray more than when we're in really tough circumstances. If you've been through a season of hardship, then you know when things are at their worst is when you most turn to God, when you're backed into a corner and you're at your limits and you're like, I have nowhere to turn, God. I need your help. That's when we go to the Lord. That's good. That's a good thing. Let calamity and tribulation draw your heart nearer to the Lord. I've wondered in tough times, Lord, have you brought this thing about so that I would pray more? Have you brought this trial about specifically so that I would learn to rely on you? Perhaps. Brothers and sisters, this is what I mean to say. Don't waste your trials. Don't waste your hardships. Don't walk through the fire with a grumbling heart. Rather, endure it on your knees. That leads us to the final point on this topic. Remember that grumbling is rebellion against God. It's not amoral. It's not simply venting. If you were to watch a human rebellion, a civil war against a government, a tyrannical government, it always starts with grumbling. The citizens grumble, the people grumble, they complain, they whine, and then they rebel. It is the first step in open warfare against a ruler. When we grumble, we've begun a movement of rebellion against God, except for he's not a tyrannical ruler. He's our Lord and our Savior and our friend. So how fiendish then is it to grumble? How much of a betrayal is it for us to rebel in that way? Jeremiah Burroughs said this about grumbling, he calls murmuring. It's a great quote. He said, a murmuring heart is a very sinful heart. So when you are troubled for this affliction that you're in, instead, turn your thoughts to be troubled for the murmuring of your heart, for that is the greatest trouble. There is an affliction upon you, and that is grievous. But there is a murmuring heart within, and that is more grievous. Oh, that we could but convince men and women that a murmuring spirit is a greater evil than any affliction, whatever the affliction. 
I know that this morning there are many here in the midst of trials and who are in anguish and in need, who've been pierced with many arrows, who feel dried up, wounded, and emptied, hurt. And sorrow may rise up in your heart, grief, lament, but take care. Keep watch over your souls. Do not let your thoughts turn inward to pity yourself, to think you deserve more than you have, to grumble against God. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Brothers and sisters, cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Look to him for strength. Cling to him for mercy. Pray to him in your need. And if you catch yourself with a grumbling tongue, if you find that in your heart, repent, confess it to the Lord. If you confess your sins, he will forgive you your sins. He loves you in the midst of this trial. He's kind towards you. Ask for your daily bread each day. He cares for the lilies of the field. He cares for the birds of the air. He cares also for you. Let's return to what our text says here, verse 16. Jude further describes these malcontent, grumbling false teachers by saying they follow their own sinful desires. Now, the grammar of this, like I said, uh, it's really two main statements being said here. He really ties following their own sinful desires to the sin of grumbling. It's as though he's saying that these men, they're not content, but they pursue contentment through sin. They're not content, they want to be content, so they follow after their sinful desires. They foolishly believe that sin will make them satisfied. What a lie that the world has bought into, that sin will grant us satisfaction. That is not true. Sin cannot satisfy your soul. It does not matter if you fully gave yourself over to it. Sin will never satisfy your soul. It promises to. Those who are in in the midst, in the throes of temptation, they are faced with this, this feeling, this thought, if I give in, I will be satisfied. I will have what my heart desires. But it's a lie. And anyone who has pursued satisfaction by means of sin knows this to be a lie by experience. It brings temporary, momentary, fleeting satisfaction. The the joys of sin are here for a moment, and then they rob you of satisfaction. True contentment is not gained through sinful desire. It is a gift. It's not received through gratifying, gratifying the flesh, but by trusting, relying on, and thanking God in every circumstance. A content man has a resolved joy at whatever his lot in life is. He he can sing faithfully the words of that famous hymn, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Don't be deceived by the lie that these false teachers were propagating, that sin can satisfy you. It cannot. It will indeed rob you of such satisfaction. Jude ends verse 16 with, these men are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. 
It's the second verbal sin that these men participate in, boasting. The sin of boasting is like a trademark sign of condemned men. If I were to define boasting, it's like the opposite of what Philippians 2 says we should do. Philippians 2 says, consider others more significant than yourself. Boasting considers yourself more significant than others. Christians ought have nothing to do with boasting. It is antithetical to our very purpose in life. It is antithetical to the gospel itself. Consider this. God has designed the gospel in such a way that men cannot boast. By grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Why must salvation not rest on our works? Why must it be by grace? Why is it by faith, by a simple looking to Christ, not by a list of ordinances we have to do? So that no one may boast. That's the reason. So that we have no grounds to glorify ourselves. Because why? Because the glory belongs to the Lord God, not to you and I. The purpose, the end, the telos of the universe is to glorify God. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the purpose. Boasting robs God of that glory. It says, no, I am more important. I ought to receive the glory. What I have done is worthy of recognition. Loud mouth boasting is antithetical to what Christianity is. Satan's crafty lie in the garden was, you will be like God. And since that day in Eden, men have sought to rob God of his glory. We want the universe to be about us. The motto of our culture is, do whatever makes you happy. Because it's all about you. It's about your glory. Boast in your accomplishments. Be recognized for your greatness. You deserve it. What irony, what what providential irony we're reading this text in the middle of so-called Pride Month, which is a human demonstration of rebellion against God, of casting off of his law. You're God now. You decide what's right. You do what's right for you. Oh, yes, celebrate. Wave your flags. Boast in your sins. Loud-mouthed boasting is the hallmark of false teachers. They boast in their vile sin, What a culture we live in that does the very same thing. Boasting is not for the Christian. It's not for us, brothers and sisters. We must put pride away from us. We must honor God rather than men, whether that's some other man or ourselves. Let God's people be reminded this morning, God is the purpose of all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything is for the Lord. That's why Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jude ends this verse then with this fact. These men showed favoritism to gain advantage. Now, I think that the advantage here is likely financial, These were wolves. They they weren't shepherds. They didn't care about the sheep. They would devour sheep if it meant that they could gain some kind of benefit. They exploited God's people. And that leads into verse 17, which says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, there's actually a very significant transition between verse 16 and 17 in the text. In verses 5 through 16, Jude has been saying, these men do this, these men do that. They follow after this, they follow after that. He's talking about these false teachers. But he emphatically says in the beginning of 17, but you, you, beloved. He's now speaking to believers. He's speaking to you and I. And his instruction is this. Remember what the apostles warned of. Verses 18 through 19 then give the content of this apostolic warning. In the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Now, this seems to be a quote from 2 Peter chapter 3. It says almost the exact same thing. Peter predicts scoffers are going to come. Jude says they're here. Brothers and sisters, they're still here. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be caught off guard by it either. The apostles predicted it. Remember the warnings of the apostles. Paul, when he was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, said this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He warned elsewhere. In later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Teachings of demons. False teachers follow the teachings of demons. That may seem harsh to some, but it's the truth. It's what the apostles spoke of. It's what they predicted. False teaching comes from the teachings of the demons. This means false faiths, other religions, the cults. They're all demonic in origin. They're demonic. Their teachings are demonic. One of the most common things that I experience when I do street evangelism is people trying to bridge the gap between Christianity and literally whatever they believe. <laughs> They're like, it's essentially the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. Uh, people say, we're not so different. You should be able to join together with the Muslims or the Mormons or the Hindus for common goods. You should be able to link arms. You guys are all people of faith. I mean, our church in particular has been invited uh, often, I think almost every year, to participate in this interfaith Christmas program with, with local wards and whatnot. We cannot, though, in good conscience, join in these endeavors to unify what we believe with false teaching. We cannot, we dare not communicate any degree of unity with demonic teaching. We dare not. False teaching is not to be trifled with. We can't act like it doesn't matter. A lot of people ask, why do you do evangelism? Just let men worship what they want. Why do you care? Here's why I care, because false teaching sends people to hell. That's why. False teaching is, it's the weapon of hell. The demons make use of this to claim souls. It has claimed billions, billions of souls have been claimed by false teaching. How dare we treat it as a minor thing? It is not minor. Men are perishing because of these lies. Remember the warnings of the apostles. They are coming, these scoffers, these false teachers. Indeed, they are here. If a teaching sends men to hell, then we must oppose it. We must oppose it. That means we don't think of false teaching as interesting. It's not creative. It's not beautiful. It's not something to be admired or examined. It's hellish. It's demonic. It is 
dangerous to the souls of men. We don't toy with demonic teaching. We tear it down. We don't admire it. We defy it in the name of the God, the Lord of heaven and earth. Billions of souls are lost and trapped in the snares of false religions. The jaws of Satan are wrapped around them. How dare we ignore these things and act like they're not a big deal? They are. People say that we're divisive. They say Christians are divisive. We're dividing God's people. Brothers and sisters, we are not the people that are divisive. Jude says then in verse 19, it is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the spirit. Why are there divisions? It is not because of Christians. It is because of the wolves who have caused divisions. Jude wasn't being divisive for contending for the faith. The false teachers were the ones being divisive. It was their doctrine, their arrogance, their immorality, their sinful desires. Those were the things that had caused division. These men are worldly people devoid of the spirit. Jude pits the world here against the spirit. Worldly people don't have the spirit. By implication, people who have the spirit are not worldly people. There are only two spheres of allegiance in the universe. You belong to one or the other. You're either of the world or you are led by the spirit. That's it. You're, you're part of the system which opposes God or you're a part of the system that is led by God. That's it. There is no other option. And every person on this planet, every single individual fits into one or the other category. If they're of the world, they're following the doctrine of demons. They are pursuing deceitful spirits and they may not even know it. This morning, brothers and sisters, I want you to consider, you to consider what system, which system do you belong to? Are you a worldly person or do you have the spirit? When I was writing this sermon, I was sitting over at the barn, uh, the, the new property that we have, and uh, I was just feeling the weight of the fact that I'm up here right now, I'm talking about these things, and there are people here who very likely will go to hell. And I'm thinking, what can I say to shake people who do not realize their state? What words can I say? How can I craft sentences that will smack people awake. And I came to the realization, I can't. I can't say anything. But the Spirit of God can convict your heart. And so we pray this morning that you, if you are not a believer, if you have deceived yourself into thinking you are a believer, if you just aren't sure about Christianity, then our prayer is that the Spirit of God would convict you of these things. That you are a sinner not that you've sinned only, you are a sinner. And the holiness of God is so great and so intense and so mighty that it stands opposed to you to judge you and crush you. The only thing keeping you back from hell at this very moment is the pleasure of the Lord to sustain your life. You are on borrowed time, as it were. 
I was talking with a brother this week uh, about churches who put you know, rainbow flags uh, out in front. And I was explaining how the problem with this, or one of the problems with this, is that it ignores the first step of the gospel. It ignores the need for repentance. It ignores the need to recognize that sin is sin. It is opposed to God. He will judge it. The first step to saving faith is we realize that we're sinners and we confess our sins. We say, Lord, I am so rotten. Even my best works, the best things I have to offer, they are nothing. They're, They're worth nothing. They're filthy, filthy, filthy in your sight. And only a man in that circumstance, with the realization of a sin and a, and a grasp of the greatness and holiness of God, only a man in that situation can then grasp Christ for mercy and say, Lord, save me. I don't have another option. If you will not be gracious, then I am lost forever. It is only the man who forsakes his works, his bad works, his good works, and says, Lord, save me. That is the only man who can be saved. And so this morning, if you are not a Christian, realize your sin of grumbling, of boasting, of arrogance, whatever. There are many sins in your heart. Confess them to the Lord. Hate them because he hates them. Turn from them. Grasp the mercies of the Lord Jesus. He died on the cross to save sinners like you and like me. If he died to save sinners, why could he not have died for you? Grasp the mercies of the Lord. Be saved. This very morning, be saved. For those who are Christians, who are believers, I think that this dichotomy between a worldly man and a spiritual man is very significant and very Uh, helpful for us. We're told in James that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. If you're a Christian and you have the spirit, then I exhort you, do not live like the world lives. Don't look like the world. Those who are of the world smell like the world. They, they act like the world. They think like the world. They talk like the world. They value the things of the world. But those who have the Spirit, well now, they're different. They look different. They talk different. They act different. They look like Jesus. I feel very strongly about this. Worldly things dampen our spirituality and our communion with God. I know this to be true. If we're fattened by the world, we will be anemic Christians. We will be. I know that because I've experienced that. If you have one glass of cup, or one glass, sorry, and you fill it with water, you can't also fill it with Coke. And if you mix the Coke and the water, well, then it's just really bad Coke. You you can't be filled both with the world and be filled with the things of God. If you fill yourself with one, you will not fill yourself with the other. We constantly, as a people, occupy ourselves with worldly, amoral often, I'm not saying they're sinful, but amoral amusements, enjoyments. We spend a lot of time just soaking in things that maybe aren't bad, but they just fill us. They fill us up. Time spent. It shapes our mind. It shapes our thinking. We don't even realize it. 
How can we be people filled with the Spirit if we're only ever filled with the things of the world? But when you set the Lord before you, before you, when you commune with Him daily, when you spend your time in His Word and in prayer, then you begin to take on His characteristics. You begin to smell like Him, not like the world. So don't fill yourself with meaningless drivel. Fill yourself with Scripture and with prayer and with the things of God. False teachers are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Those who follow them are worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Christians are not worldly people. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Brothers and sisters, let us learn what not to do as we examine the errors of false teachers. Learn to trust in the Lord, to not grumble. Learn to not be arrogant, not be a boaster. Learn to commune with God and beware the false prophets in our day. Seek after the Lord, know his voice. His sheep know his voice, know his voice. You'll be spared from them, but beware. Be aware that they are on the prowl, that they seek your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, please, God, sanctify us completely. Cause us to look like Jesus. Lord, you know our particular sins and our trials and our struggles. You know what we're dealing with. Please help us in our situations and our circumstances. Please help us to not be grumblers. Please grant us contentment and a peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, teach us to be content in all circumstances. We confess we're just not by nature. Fill us with love for you. Lord, protect us from worldliness and protect us from the errors of false teachers, from the doctrine of demons. Lord, protect your people. Preserve your people in the faith, Lord, ultimately so that you may be glorified, not so that we can boast, Lord, but so that you can boast in your greatness and the gloriousness of your attributes on display in the work of salvation. Thank you for the epistle of Jude. Lord, please remind us of these truths. Um, and they're relevant for us, especially this week, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.